Welcome to year four of the Curator 135 podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Ali, and this is episode 67, The Mystery of the Carol A. Deering. Hey, while I have your attention, the Acorns app makes it easy to save and invest. Join me and you'll get a free $5 investment. As a perk of referring users, I can get a reward too. Learn more and see terms on Curator135.com. Just follow the link. To begin our story, we need to go back to the final years of World War I. The battle began in 1914 with the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey, fighting against the Allies, France, Great Britain, Russia, Italy, and Japan. In 1917, the United States joined the war, bringing much-needed support to the Allies. Imagine living along the East Coast in 1918 and knowing that just below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, German soldiers were keeping an eye on the United States from inside their U-boats. U-boats were German naval submarines used in both world wars. In German, they were called U-boots, which is shortened from Unterseeboot, when World War I began, U-boats were considered to be quite advanced. They were able to go more than 150 feet below the surface. They could travel at 16 knots at surface level and 8 knots underwater. These subs also had a range of up to 25,000 miles. In those days, U-boats carried torpedoes, usually around 16, but they were unreliable. Because of this, they relied mostly on surface attacks using their deck-mounted guns to take down boats. Being on the surface also allowed the Germans to board merchant ships, steal their supplies before the ship sank, and then return underwater for a fast getaway. On May 7th of 1915, the German vessel U-20 sank the passenger liner RMS Lusitania off the coast of Ireland. 1,198 passengers died that day. 128 of those people were Americans. Sensing that the United States was upset, the Germans backed away from the East Coast. On April 6, 1917, the United States joined the war, devoting manpower, supplies, and naval forces to help the Allies in Europe. Unfortunately, this left the East Coast exposed, and the U-boats returned. From April of 1917 until November of 1918, four German U-boats visited the East Coast, and by the end of the war, those submarines had managed to sink nearly 200 American ships. On August 14, 1918, one of those American ships destroyed was a five-masted schooner named the Dorothy B. Barrett. The ship, which was built by the G.G. Deering Company in 1905, weighed over 2,000 tons and was captained by a man named William Merritt. His sons, Ray and Sewell, were his first and second mates. It wasn't going to be a long voyage. The ship had a cargo hold full of coal and was traveling from New York down to Norfolk, Virginia. During the trip, German submarine U-117 surfaced nearby and opened fire on the schooner, sending its crew of 11 into the lifeboats and the ship itself down to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Captain William H. Merritt, a hero of World War I, would eventually be cited for bravery under fire for saving his entire crew. As they rowed their lifeboats towards Cape May on the southern tip of New Jersey, American seaplanes and submarine chasers went after the U-boat forcing it to quickly submerge to avoid the onslaught of depth charges. 
While Ray Merritt went on to become a manager with Standard Oil, his brother Sewell continued to sail with their father, who was now the captain of a ship named Carol A. Deering. Like his last boat, the Carol A. Deering was a five-masted schooner and one of the last large commercial sailing vessels made in America. The cargo ship was built in Bath, Maine in 1919 by the G.G. Deering Company and named after the son of the company's owner. The crew consisted of Captain William Merritt, first mate Sewell Merritt, a Finnish boatswain named Johan Fredriksen, a 51-year-old cook from the West Indies, an American engineer from Maine named Herbert R. Bates, and six Danish men. On July 19, 1920, the Carol A. Deering sailed from Puerto Rico to Newport News, Virginia, to pick up a load of coal for delivery to Rio de Janeiro. On August 26, the crew boarded the Deering and set sail for Brazil. The ship soon cleared the Virginia Capes, Cape Charles to the north and Cape Henry to the south, the two capes to find the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay on the east coast. It wasn't long after that Captain Merritt fell seriously ill, and a decision was made to delay the delivery and turn back. The Deering was steered towards the port city of Lewis, Delaware, roughly 170 miles to the north. There, Captain Merritt exited the ship and was joined by his son Sewell, who wanted to look after his father. The Deering Company would have to hire a new captain and a new first mate in order to complete the voyage. Eventually, they landed on a 66-year-old veteran captain by the name of Willis B. Warmel. Warmel was solidly built at 6'1 and 198 pounds. He had salt and pepper wavy hair, a mustache, and stained yellow teeth from years of tobacco use. He was a religious man who adhered to the old ways of the sea. Despite his worsening vision, he was considered to be a reliable man to helm the Carol A. Deering. A gentleman named Charles B. McClellan was hired on as first mate. Whether or not the two had a history is unknown, but right away there were problems between the new hires. Wormel and McClellan were at each other's throats not long after they came aboard. The Deering, with Wormel now in command, set sail for Rio de Janeiro on September 8th and arrived at the port city with its cargo in tow without incident. Once in Rio, Wormel awarded the crew some leave time. During that time, Captain Wormel met up with an old friend, another cargo ship captain named Goodwin. It became apparent to Goodwin rather quickly that Wormel didn't love the crew he was placed with. Out of all the men aboard, he seemed to think he could only trust the ship's engineer, Herbert Bates. Goodwin agreed. He and Herbert had worked together in the past. The Carol A. Deering finally left Rio on December 2nd with no cargo aboard. Being on board a ship with close quarters didn't help the conflict between Wormel and McClellan. The two immediately got under each other's skin. Tempers continued to flare all along the over 3,000 nautical mile trip to Barbados, where they planned to stock up on supplies before the return trip to North America. Sometime before they docked, McClellan yelled at the captain, I'll kill you before it's over, old man. While in Barbados, Warmel commented to another old friend, Captain Hugh Norton, that his first mate, McClellan, was habitually drunk while ashore. He treats the men brutally. It's totally uncalled for. Warmel was asked by Norton if he was worried about mutiny. Warmel didn't believe that all the men would turn against him, but the two captains agreed that it wouldn't take the whole crew to start a rebellion. Later, first mate Charles McClellan bumped into that same captain, Captain Norton, 
while getting drunk at the Continental Cafe in town. McClellan complained to Norton that Warmel wouldn't let him discipline the lazy crew properly. Warmel was always interfering, McClellan said, adding that he had to do all the navigation on his own thanks to Warmel's poor eyesight. That evening, Captain Norton overheard McClellan say to another man, I'll get the captain before we get to Norfolk. I will. McClellan's drunkenness and threats towards his captain landed him in jail. Warmel, always the bigger man in both size and spirit, hoped that McClellan might have learned his lesson, so he paid to have his first mate bailed out of jail. On January 9th of 1921, the dysfunctional crew left Barbados and set sail towards the port of Hampton Roads, Virginia. Meanwhile, on January 20th, at Sabine Pass, Port Arthur, Texas, the SS Hewitt left port and entered the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, headed for the East Coast. The SS Hewitt was a steel-hauled bulk freighter built for the J.S. Emery Steamship Company of Boston, Massachusetts, and purchased by the Union Sulphur Company in 1915. Under the command of Captain Hans Jacob Hansen, the ship was fully loaded with sulphur and held a crew of 42. Captain Hansen's final destination was to be Portland, Maine, with a scheduled stop in Boston, Massachusetts. The ship made regular radio calls every day up until January 25th, and each time reported nothing unusual. The SS Hewitt was last spotted 250 nautical miles north of Jupiter Inlet, Florida. Back aboard the Carolay Deering, according to the ship's logs, everything seemed to be going about normally. Something, though, was amiss. The next time that the Deering is seen is on January 29th. Captain Thomas Jacobson sees the vessel from his post aboard the Cape Lookout lightship. Lightships were boats used as floating lighthouses to warn sailors of dangerous conditions. The Cape Lookout lightship was posted off of the coast of North Carolina to warn ships about the nearby Diamond Shoals area. And what are the Diamond Shoals? The shoals refer to an area of shallow, shifting sandbars located off the coast of North Carolina. The area is known for its dangerous conditions, with strong currents, frequent storms, and shallow water depths that cause ships to quickly run aground or sink. Captain Jacobson was hailed by a crewman on board, shouting through a megaphone. The crewman, surrounded by other members of the crew, was not Captain Warmel. He knew this because the tall, thin man with reddish hair did not look or act like an officer. Whoever it was shouted to Captain Jacobson that, the schooner lost her anchors while riding out the gale south of Cape Fear. Please, tell the Deering Company. Unfortunately for Jacobson, the lightship's radio was out, and he watches the Carolay Deering drift out of sight along the coast. Not long after, a steamer passed by, and Jacobson does his best to make contact with it. He's hoping that he can relay the Deering's message to the steamship, and that they will get the message delivered to the Deering Company. He blows the ship's horn numerous times. And although the ship is required to answer the call, they don't. The steamship ignored the horn and continued on its way, following along the same path as the Deering. Another thing Jacobson found peculiar was that the crew had covered the steamship's name with a tarp. Jacobson does the only thing he can do at the time and pulls out his logbook. 4.30 p.m., five-masted schooner Carol A. Deering is passing bound north reported having lost both anchors and chains off Frying Pan Shoal. Asked to be reported, but 
ship's wireless out of commission, was unable to get in touch with passing vessel. The following day, Captain Henry Johnson of the SS Lake Alon reported seeing a five-masted schooner moving slowly on what he considered to be a strange course. They couldn't be sure if it was the Carol A. Deering, but the description matched. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary to Captain Johnson other than the apparent course. On January 31st, Surfman C.P. Brady began his shift on lookout duty at the Coast Guard Station at Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. He quickly spotted the Carol A. Deering resting hard aground with all of its sails set. The ship sat on the outer edge of the Diamond Shoals. They were an all-too-common site of shipwrecks for centuries and had come to be known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. He can see from his vantage point that the lifeboats are gone. By mid-morning, two lifeboats were sent out from the nearby stations. Due to the waves and wind and the strength of the tide, the lifeboats could only get as close as a quarter mile away. The following day was February 1st. The sea was still rough, with breakers crashing against the hull of the Carolee Deering. A Coast Guard cutter ship named Seminole approached the schooner, but stopped near where the lifeboats had been. It was still too dangerous to approach the shoals. Then, on February 2nd, the Coast Guard cutter Manning, along with a wrecking tugboat, joined in, but the conditions were still too hazardous. Regarding the SS Hewitt, which had not been heard from now for nine days, Coast Guard officials in Atlantic City reported hearing an explosion and seeing a flash approximately 20 miles offshore on the evening of February 3rd. They initially believed that it could have been the sulfur-filled Hewitt, but no debris was ever found. Finally, the weather cleared and on February 4th, the Carol A. Deering was boarded. Tugboat Captain James Carlson took his crew onto the ship, which was now battered from days on the shoals and taking on water. What they found created new questions instead of answering any of the existing ones. The ship was completely abandoned, the steering was damaged, the wheel was shattered, and the rudder was broken, most likely resulting from the ship being pounded by waves for the past few days. The ship's log and navigation equipment, the crew's personal effects, and the ship's two lifeboats were all missing. But the galley had also been recently used. There was still food on the stove, as if the cook had left in a hurry. In the captain's private quarters, they noticed three different sets of boot prints going in and out. The spare bed was also slept in. On Captain Warmel's desk, there was a large map charting the ship's movements. They found daily notes in the captain's handwriting up until January 23rd. And then, for some reason, a second person with completely different handwriting took over from there. Captain Carlson also noticed that red lights had been run up the mast, which was an indicator that the Deering was derelict, or out of control. After an attempt to tow the boat to shore proved unsuccessful, and resulted in needing to cut the tow line, it was decided that they would need to destroy the ship. On March 4th, after a series of storms passed through the area, the Carol A. Deering was dynamited. The initial theory was that the ship had run aground along the Diamond Shoals, and that the crew had abandoned ship in the lifeboats, and then perished in the rough seas. Other sailors knew this to be untrue. The crew would have known to drop the sails in order to steady the ship. It was determined that the crew would have more than likely abandoned ship before it ran into the shoals. Captain Warmel's wife and daughter, Lulu, believed that it was pirate activity. Modern-day pirates or rum-runners overtook the crew, perhaps kidnapping them. The story held so much interest that the U.S. government launched an extensive investigation. 
Five different departments of the government, including Commerce, Treasury, Justice, Navy, and State, all looked into the case. The current Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, was so intrigued that he placed his assistant, Lawrence Ritchie, in charge of the investigation. Ritchie made numerous attempts to chart what happened to the vessel between the 29th and 31st of January. It was soon discovered that a total of nine ships had disappeared around the same time and in the same area. The SS Hewitt disappeared on a course from Sabine, Texas to Portland, Maine. The ship was following a course and speed that supposedly put her close to the Deering. Was it possible that the Hewitt had taken the Deering's crew aboard after they'd run into trouble, and together the two crews died in a terrible explosion? Maybe. There were steamships like the Monte San Michel of Italy and Esperanza de Laranaga of Spain, the cargo ship Steinson, the Italian cargo ship Florino, the Norwegian cargo ship Svartskog, and others all vanished in late January. In early February, 33 men disappeared from a tanker sailing from Norfolk to Manchester, England. Most of the ships listed were found to have been sailing in the vicinity of a series of very strong hurricanes. The Hewitt, which would remain interwoven with the Deering throughout the investigation, had been sailing away from the area of the storm at that time. A British insurance company suggested that it was possible that the Hewitt may have collided with the Carolay Deering and sunk. After examining the Deering, however, it was determined that there wasn't damage to the vessel consistent with the collision. On April 11th of 1921, things took another wild turn. A man named Christopher Columbus Gray claimed to have found a message in a bottle floating in the waters of Buxton Beach, North Carolina. The note appeared to be in the hand of Deering's engineer, Herbert Bates, and the bottle had been made in Brazil. He turned the bottle over to authorities. The note inside the bottle read, Deering captured by oil-burning boat something like Chaser, taking off everything, handcuffing crew, crew hiding all over ship, no chance to make escape. Finder, please notify headquarters of Deering. This made sense to some investigators. Perhaps the mysterious steamer following the Deering that had refused to respond to the Cape Lookout lightship was in fact chasing the Deering. Skeptics wondered, though, if a crew member did manage to get a hold of paper, pen, and a bottle, and then write a letter, why would he request that the company be notified, as opposed to the police or Coast Guard? It didn't take long for handwriting experts to conclude that the message in the bottle had been forged. Soon, Christopher Columbus Gray himself confessed to writing the note to an undercover operative. Gray, it seemed, had wanted a job with the Cape Hatteras light station, and thought that finding the bottle would gain him enough fame and recognition to secure employment. Investigators soon arrived at Buxton Beach to take Gray into custody. Gray managed to get away before they arrived. Lawrence Ritchie, assistant to Herbert Hoover, was able to track down Gray by tricking the man. After learning of Gray's application for a job at the lighthouse keeper's station, Ritchie leaked a message to some of Gray's acquaintances that he should come to the lighthouse keeper's station concerning his job application. When Gray arrived, he was greeted by federal agents, who took him into custody. As the investigation continued throughout 1921, Russian Bolshevik piracy soon became the leading theory. Maybe Russia was sending out crews to confiscate cargo that Russians could not buy under the new embargo on the Red Regime. Rumors began to circulate that numerous vessels with their names painted over had been seen in Russian ports. During a police raid on the headquarters of the United Russian Workers' Party in New York City, Officers allegedly found papers that called on members of the organization 
to seize American ships and sail them to the Soviet Union. The U.S. Navy was ordered to look for the crews of these ships, but nothing was ever found. The investigation ended without answers in 1922, and still now, more than 100 years later, we have no answers. One idea that believers in the supernatural have held on to is that something happened to the crew when it passed through the area known as the Bermuda Triangle. The three points of the triangle are Miami, Florida to the west, Bermuda to the northeast, and San Juan, Puerto Rico to the south. There are numerous issues with this explanation, however. First and foremost, where the ship ended up was hundreds of miles away from the Bermuda Triangle. Another big issue is that hundreds of ships and planes pass through the supposed triangle every day. In fact, people live within the borders of the triangle. The Bermuda Triangle may, in fact, be blamed so frequently due to the sheer amount of traffic it sees on a daily basis. When you take away the more fantastical possibilities like pirates or Russians or aliens or a mysterious unknown triangle, it leaves us with a mutiny gone bad, the SS Hewitt theory, or just plain bad luck, according to Coast Guard Captain R.L. Gaskell in an interview with a local newspaper in 1921. There is no mystery at all in the disappearance of the crew of the Carolay Deering. The idea of piracy is so much newspaper bunk. His explanation? Faced with a ship stuck on the outer sandbar of the Diamond Shoals, 90-mile-an-hour winds, and waves like mountains, the crew had to make a quick decision to either stay with the ship and risk being stranded, or try to take the lifeboats to shore. In such a sea as this, the crew of the Deering manned their lifeboats and tried to make it to shore nine miles away. But no lifeboat could survive in those waters. So what do you believe? A boat washing ashore with no crew is mysterious no matter what the circumstances were. Signs point to Captain Warmel losing control of the ship after the 23rd. It was clear that other men had been inside his quarters and taken over the responsibility of charting their progress. But what about the sails being up, dinner on the stove, the anchors, the strange man shouting to the lightship? And by the way, there wasn't a red-haired man on the ship's roster. We'll likely never know, and that's what makes it so fascinating. The ocean is vast and unforgiving, and it holds countless mysteries and unknowns. The disappearance of the Deering crew is up there on the list. Let me know what you think. Nathan at Curator135.com Visit the website to see photos of the Carol A. Deering, the Hewitt, the crew, and various news articles from 1921. Curator135.com if you enjoyed this podcast and want to be a bigger part of it, consider becoming a patron. Head to patreon.com slash curator135 and join Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Thank you, patrons. I could not do this without you guys. Like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, X, and TikTok. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.